At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 50, the Chinese Civil War, 1923 to 1937. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. As always, I want to thank our Patreon sponsors and those who have made one-time contributions through the website for helping to make this podcast possible. If you enjoy this podcast and learning about the Cold War, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter or making a donation through our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com. One word. Want to skip over these ads and get straight to the history? Consider becoming a Patreon contributor to get the commercial-free episodes. Last episode, we reviewed the events leading up to the beginning of the Chinese Civil War in the 1920s. We reviewed the decline and fall of the Qing Empire and the start of the Chinese century of humiliation. We spoke about how China descended into political chaos as warlords divided the nation amongst themselves. We also examined the rise of Sun Yat-sen, his Nationalist Party, and their early alliance with the Chinese communists and the inherent fissures of that alliance. In this episode, we're going to examine both the nationalists and the communists and the rise of the two men who would lead both parties, Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong. As always, forgive me for any mispronunciations. During the 1920s, two revolutionary forces and two young men would come to the fore in China. The nationalists, or the Kuomintang, eventually led by Chiang Kai-shek, and the Chinese Communists eventually led by Mao. In 1923, when the two parties established a united front to work together, both were minor figures. Chiang's youth was spent as the son of an affluent and locally well-connected family of salt merchants, which was a very financially rewarding occupation at the time. Nevertheless, Chiang searched for a way to play his part in reversing China's decline. Given China's many military defeats over the previous decades, Chiang chose a career in the military, despite the traditionally low standing of the military in Chinese culture. In 1906, he enrolled at the Baoding Military Academy in Tokyo. Like many of his generation, he thought China could learn a lot from Japan, which had defeated Russia, a Western power, in 1905. With the rise of Yun Shi Kai, Chiang became disillusioned with Chinese politics, entering a self-imposed exile where he read histories of revolutions in Germany, France, and Russia, reading translations of Marx and Lenin. Chang also read the accounts of Confucian generals in the middle of the 19th century from the Taiping Rebellion. He read Wang Ying Ming, who had argued that virtue was innate in all of us, rather than something that could only be acquired through years of strenuous self-cultivation. In 1916, Chang's brother was murdered, which left Chang shaken and influenced by the ancient writings he was reading. He became determined to control his bad temper, curb his womanizing, and focused on living a purposeful and disciplined life. Chang's search for purpose in life ended when Sun Yat-sen and the Kuomintang decided to create an independent military force. Up until this point, Sun had put his faith in the ability of an isolated mutiny or local rebellion 
to spark a nationwide uprising as happened in 1911. Otherwise, he relied on the support of a general in the army, as with Yuan, in 1912 and in 1917 when he established a government in Canton, only to be driven out two years later. He returned to Canton soon after, but was ejected again in 1922. Noting these failures and the success of the Bolsheviks, who had built their own army and the Russian Revolution, Sun concluded that a party army was needed. Soviet agents quickly arrived in China to help Sun build an army, as at this time the Kuomintang and the Chinese Communist Party were politically aligned. Therefore, the Soviets sent advisors, arms, and funds to help Sun build an army. In 1923, having succeeded in marshalling enough funds to establish a secure base in Canton, Sun sent Chiang Kai-shek, one of his young protégés, to Moscow to negotiate details of a collaboration agreement with the Soviet Union. Upon his return to China, Chiang became commandant of the Guanpo Military Academy, where Soviet advisors oversaw the training of cadets for the new Nationalist Officer Corps, many of whom would go on to become the leaders of both the Nationalist and Communist armies in the 1930s and 1940s. The goal of the academy was to impart these officers with at least a mid-level or middle school education. They were not only dedicated to the revolution, but were honest, competent, and trustworthy. Their training included tactics, small arms training, logistics, engineering, communication, hygiene, and geography. Hygiene may seem a little odd, but it should be remembered at this time, more men died in war from disease than actual combat, so hygiene was a vital part of any army. By October 1924, a thousand cadets were in training. By 1929, 7,399 cadets had graduated from the academy, enough to staff a good-sized army all of whom had been indoctrinated in the ideals of Sun Yat-sen. Party discipline, socialism, and the ills of imperialism were stressed throughout their time at the academy. When Sun Yat-sen died in 1925 of stomach cancer, he became the immortalized figure of the Chinese Revolution of 1911 and the Kuomintang. Tens of thousands of people attended his memorial service in Beijing. The hearse carried a giant portrait of him preceding his funeral entourage. In 1929, a portrait of Sun was placed in Tiananmen Square, where the portrait of Mao Zedong currently hangs. Mass memorial events took place in Canton and in Hong Kong, where fighting broke out between mourners and the British police. Even in New York, a memorial service was held, uh, attended by about a thousand people. Sun Yat-sen's death, though, raised the question of who would come to lead the progressive forces of China. There were three contenders to lead the movement. 42-year-old Vong Jing Vi, handsome, young, and charismatic, he was Cantonese like Sun and had passed the fiercely competitive civil service examination, going on to study law and politics in Japan. He had carved out a place for himself in the Nationalist Party as a great speaker and a writer. His status was elevated to revolutionary when he attempted to assassinate the regent prince Chun in 1910. Hu Han Ming, who was also from Shandong province, led the right wing within the party. 44, he too had passed the civil service examination and gone on to study in Japan. He had become the main editor of the party's paper, The People's Journal. Over the years, he had worked in a number of capacities for the party, including as transportation minister. The final contender was Lao Jun Kai. Born in San Francisco in 1877, his father had worked for HSBC Bank. Lao was educated in the United States and at Queen's College in Hong Kong and at Wasada University in Japan. He was the party's treasurer, becoming an expert in finance, and using his connections amongst wealthy Cantonese and Chinese overseas to raise money. 
He had been one of the main architects of the alliance between the communist and the nationalist, and had supported Chiang and the establishment of the Wanpu Military Academy. Bong Jingfei emerged as the immediate leader as he was elected chair of the Nationalist Political Council, chair of Military Affairs Committee, and the Central Political Council of the Nationalist Party. On August the 20th, Lao was assassinated, which many blamed on Hu Hanming, who was arrested and sent to the Soviet Union for further investigation. With Lao dead and Hu in exile, Vong's position seemed secured. Chang had not been considered by many as a successor to Sun because he was relatively young and a soldier, not a highly respected position within Chinese society at the time. He lacked the stellar education of many of the other contenders. Nevertheless, Chang did have the loyalty and support of the army, and as Mao would later say, quote, true political power grows from the barrel of a gun, close quote. Chang saw the assassination of his friend Lao and Hu's exiles evidence of a plot. Moreover, the growing influence of the Communist Party and the Soviets worried Chang. Before Sun died, one of his goals had been a military expedition to defeat the warlords of northern China and to unite the nation once again. The Soviets, however, advised against this plan of action now that Sun was dead. Chang's worries intensified when Vong chipped away at his hold on military power. Not only did he relieve Chang of his post of commanding the 1st Division and Canton Garrison Commander, but sided with the Soviets in canceling the northern expedition. Chang became convinced that it was up to him to save the revolution that Sun Yat-sen had begun. So on March the 20th, 1926, he placed Canton under martial law, arrested his enemies, disarmed the Soviet advisors, and expelled them back to the Soviet Union. Vung Cheng Fi fled to France, although he would return in 1931, when he and Chang put their differences aside after Japan invaded Manchuria. A few months after exiling the Soviets, Chang led the Northern Expedition, an army of 2.2 million north, against the warlords. Two years later, they marched into Beijing, achieving Sun Yat-sen's dream of uniting the country, and Chiang Kai-shek's portrait replaced that of Sun Yat-sen's on the gate of the Forbidden Palace overlooking Tiananmen Square. When Chiang left for the Northern Expedition, the Nationalist government was run by the left wing and the Communists. When he reached Shanghai in 1927, he decided to move against the Communists, ending the United Front established by Sun Yat-sen, and what became known as the 12th of April Coup, or the White Terror. Nationalist troops and Green Gang gangsters from Shanghai killed any Communists they could find, wiping out the one strong Communist movement in Shanghai. Over the next few months, three to 4,000 communists were executed along with 30,000 others and 25,000 other people were imprisoned, virtually eliminating the communists from the urban South China. Naturally, the purge of the communists caused a break with the Soviets, thus a loss of their technical and financial support. Hence, Chiang would now need a new great power sponsor to help him build China. Having studied in Japan, he thought Japan the natural ally of modern China. Japan, though, preferred a divided China, but were willing to tolerate a united China up to the Great Wall, but wanted Manchuria, the focus of their investments, to remain in their sphere of influence. The Japanese did, however, enthusiastically back Chang's moves against the communists. That same year, Chang also married into one of the most powerful families in China, the Sung family. Charles Jones Sung had immigrated to America as a child where he converted to Christianity. When he returned to China, he made a fortune selling Bibles and noodles. He raised three sons and three daughters who were renowned for their beauty. The oldest daughter married Sun Yat-sen, a man 26 years her senior. 
The youngest daughter, Mei Ling Song, married Chiang Kai-shek, popularly known as Madame Chiang Kai-shek, who we've all spoken about in past episodes. The marriage added money, prestige, and the charm of his wife to Chiang's political arsenal. At this point, Chiang controlled everything in China south of the Yangtze, this historic divide between North and South China. He controlled 25% of China's territory and 66% of China's population. Northern China and Manchuria remained mainly in the hands of the warlord Zheng Zulin. Despite this, though, he lacked the forces to fully subdue his enemies. Many warlords had been bought off with high government posts, meaning the danger of insurrection always existed, which is what happened in 1930 and the Great War of the Central Plains. The war ended up lasting 300,000. It also ravaged five provinces. Chang's victory in 1930, though, added to his national stature and the legitimacy of his government and extended his effective power northward to the Yellow River. Chang then turned to what he considered the most dangerous threat to his rule, the communists. In 1930, the nationalists began the first of five campaigns to drive the communists out of central China. The communists responded with a guerrilla war and for a time halted the nationalist advance, but in 1934, Chang deployed a million troops, surrounding the Jiangxi Soviet, building a string of concrete blockhouses to control the territory they captured, squeezing the communists until escape became their only option. The nationalists succeeded in driving the communists from central China and forcing them on the long march. Chang pursued the communists and eliminated the communists in southern China, burying entire villages to the ground. By some estimates, a million people died in the three-year crackdown from 1934 to 1936. Victory in the Fifth Encirclement Campaign marked the zenith of Chang's political power. Nevertheless, rather than a unitary, centralized state, he ruled over a coalition of warlords whose autonomy had been reduced by the northern expedition, but who constantly tested his authority. However, Chang effectively won the first round of the civil war in China, ending 17 years of fighting since the fall of the Qing dynasty. He had eliminated, neutralized, or co-opted his most powerful warlord rivals and the communists, beginning the Nanking decade, 1927 to 1937. I want to take a quick moment here and thank our Patreon supporters and one-time contributors for making this show possible. Your contributions cover the cost of hosting the podcast, the website, and covering the cost of books, sources, and sound equipment. Moreover, if you like episodes about Asian history like this episode or episodes about Indian independence or the French war in Indochina, help us by making a donation or spreading the word. If you don't like how these ads interrupt the narrative or me begging for money, become a Patreon supporter so you can get access to the commercial-free episodes. Now back to the show. Chang became the new undisputed head of the Nationalist Party. He trusted very few people and usually appeared in public wearing his military uniform. The Chinese capital was moved from Beijing to Nanking. The traditional capital, Beijing, was now too close to Manchuria, which had been occupied by Japan in 1931, meaning Japan could quickly capture the city in a surprise attack. Beijing had also been the capital of Mongol and Manchu China, which were seen by many Chinese as foreign invaders. Canton had been Sun Yat-sen's traditional base of support, but it was too close to Hong Kong, which was controlled by Great Britain and thought susceptible to British occupation. Canton also had a legacy of resentment against the Kuomintang. The area was heavily taxed to support the northern expedition and experienced a number of rebellions that were put down. During the expedition, expenditures took up to 78% of national income. Nanking, on the other hand, had served as the capital of Ming China, what was considered by many Chinese to be the last legitimate government. 
It was a good distance away from foreign power centers like Hong Kong or Manchuria as well. Moreover, many of Chiang's most trusted and important supporters were from the region. They were determined to turn Nanking into a modern capital city on par with Paris, Vienna, Washington, Berlin, or St. Petersburg, a source of national pride and a symbol of China's rebirth. The capital plan called for construction of a large paved boulevards so that automobile traffic could travel around the city. An administrative district with large imposing government buildings, a financial district, an airport to welcome foreign visitors, a large central train station, an industrial zone, and a designated area for housing. The plan called for a clean city with running water, sewage, parks, public spaces, and planted trees along the boulevards. Museums, theaters, radio stations, and cinemas would dot the landscape. The epicenter of this new city would be the mausoleum to Sun Yat-sen. The building was to be more than just a grave, but an illustration in stone and marble of the country's origins, its future, and its core beliefs. Sun Yat-sen was considered by both the nationalists and the communists as the father of, their, of the country. As such, for the nationalists, Sun's writings and views became holy scripture and cited in debates and political documents. In October of 1928, the nationalists established a five-branch government, which had been envisioned by Sun Yat-sen, with an executive, legislative, judicial, literary, or intelligentsia, and civil service who would serve as a nation's administrators and who would have to go through an examination process as in classical China. Sun anticipated China moving through three stages of development, starting with the military rule to unite the country, which Chiang had more or less completed by 1928. This would be followed by a period of guided political transition under the Nationalist Party to prepare the Chinese people for a constitutional government. This age of tutelage didn't end until 2000 in Taiwan with fully democratic presidential elections and remains unfulfilled on the mainland. On the basis of this, Chiang made himself chairman of the Nationalist Party and head of the executive branch. The Nationalists built an extensive party organization carefully integrated into both the civil and military institutions from the national level down to the local. Despite the creation of these embryonic institutions in China and the creation of a new Republic of China, politics were very much based on regional loyalties, personalities, and personal loyalties. Political power was measured in how many supporters you had and how effective you were in utilizing and organizing your supporters. Until the end of the Qing dynasty, most Chinese saw their allegiance first to their regional geography or place of birth. Many dialects were spoken across China, and although some dialects within China were intelligible, many others were not. Indeed, it was the Chinese War of Resistance to Japan that really gave national identity to China. Ironically, the Japanese unwittingly fostered the development of nationalism by their acts of barbarity in the opening stages of the Second Sino-Japanese War. It made Chinese see common bonds and the need to stand together against a foreign invader. Institutional politics are based on loyalty to an institution, be it a government or a part of a government. A great example of this would be the U.S. Marines and former U.S. Marines who believe they have a lifelong connection and support for the organization beyond any one person in the Marine Corps. Institutions become stronger over time through the gradual and increasing acceptance of their legitimacy in a nation. In a political environment without strong institutions, personal ties of loyalty are the social glue holding people together. The complexity and secrecy of these webs of loyalty made Chinese politics murky and unstable. Warlords were uncertain of the strength of their loyalties of their own followers, let alone their political rivals. This aspect of personal politics versus institution politics continues to be a leitmotif in Chinese politics up to the present.
After the Civil War, Mao was the great helmsman of the Chinese state, towering over the nation and the Chinese Communist Party during his life. After his death from the late 1970s until recently, China moved away from placing too much power in one person's hands. Earlier this year, though, in a shocking turn of events, the political powers that were once invested in Mao, leader of the nation or president, chairman of the Communist Party, and head of the military, were all placed under Xi Jinping, the current president of China, and term limits were removed in anticipation that he will be president of China for the foreseeable future or leader for life like Mao. There is even talk his photo will replace Mao's in Tiananmen Square. Chiang's supporters were based in the party, the technocratic elite, and the military. The Nationalist Party wasn't a broad-based party like, say, the Democrats or Republicans. It was composed of bankers, administrators, technicians, intellectuals, and businessmen. These factions within the Nationalist Party favored competing priorities. Chiang was not a uniting force for these factions, but ruled from a position of dividing those loyal to him as to prevent the rise of any potential political rivals. Chiang's chief generals were appointed as chairs of the various political councils, while they were also given high appointments in the Nanking government. In return for endorsing the Kuomintang and ex- accepting these appointments, they continued to enjoy virtual independence in the regions under their rule in a form of loose federalism. Chiang's methods reflected China as it was, not an idea of the China he and the nationalists wanted to create. His predecessor, the infamous Emperor Dowager, had used such a strategy with great dexterity during the twilight years of the Qing Empire. Hence, Chinese politics during the period of the Civil War and in the Cold War remained a politics based on personalities, despite the movement during the era and after to build up state institutions. During the Nanking decade, the 10 years before the outbreak of the Second Sino-Japanese War in 1937, military development became an important driver of the nation-building of the nationalists. It became clear that the warlords would not dismiss their armies willingly, and in order to establish dominance, they focused on building an elite army with German assistance. Chiang related to the way in which the German army related to the state and was embedded in its society as an essential element to building a modern nation-state. As the old saying went, Prussia, the forerunner of Germany, was not a state with an army, but the Prussian army happened to own a state. Many German thinkers, such as General Friedrich von Bernhardi, whose 1911 book, Germany in the Next War, saw war as a creative and cleansing act which brought out the best in a society and strengthened its vitality, deeply influencing Chiang's thinking around building the Chinese state and its army. Germany agreed to provide assistance, which included advisors and weapons in exchange for rare metals, which Germany needed for its arms industry. Chiang commanded the loyalties of just three of the eight armies that comprised the National Revolutionary Armies, or about 5-10% to 10% of the total armed forces in China. Of the troops under nationalist command, some wouldn't even deploy out of province. Of those that did, they fought poorly and were prone to defection. Compounding these problems, Chiang would use these troops as cannon fodder on his campaign, sacrificing their lives before the lives of his loyal troops, making it difficult to build a true national army. Thus, the Germans advised the creation of an elite army of 60 divisions, supported by a highly trained officer corps, paid for out of the government treasury with a strict personnel system, a strong logistical organization, and a domestic arms industry. In 1932, they created a general staff which collected vast amounts of information on China's natural resources, its transportation infrastructure, economy, demographics, and existing military forces, as well as that of the Japanese forces in the region. It drew up detailed plans for training a new army and called for the government to take control of key industries and resources 
and called on China to build its industries inland, away from the vulnerable coast, which couldn't be invaded or attacked. In 1933, national conscription was put into place. All men between the ages of 18 and 45 were eligible for the draft in the National Army for two years. Once they completed their service, they were required to serve in reserve units for up to six years. In the end, some 50,000 men were drafted in this way before the outbreak of the war with Japan in 1937. The Germans provided four-fifths of the nationalist imported weapons during the late 1930s. The Americans as well were major arms suppliers to the Kuomintang in the early 1930s, providing 339 planes. In the 16 months following the escalation of fighting between China and Japan, Germany would provide 60% of China's arms imports, reluctantly cutting off its aid to the nationalists to preserve their relations with Japan. In 1934, a secret army organization was put into place, which began to remove old and unfit officers from the nationalist army. In 1936, with the help of the Germans, China's first national war plan was drawn up. The plan outlined the most anticipated future war China would have to face, focusing on Japan as the most likely aggressor. Given Japan's military superiority, the plan called for a strategy of attrition which would exploit China's vast spaces and huge population. It also called for the construction of fortifications. Nanking, the capital, was fortified with anti-aircraft guns, coastal artillery, and heavy artillery. Defensive positions were prepared at the Yellow River and other sites in northern China. Beyond the modernization of the army, the nationalists engage in a host of other nation-building activities, including infrastructure, industrialization, education, and the establishment of a modern bureaucracy, a court system, and police forces. They built a national system of primary and secondary schools, as well as universities and research institutions. The Nanking government struggled to find a way between furthering its cores of centralizing and unifying agenda and the reality that their power and resources were limited. Despite all their grand plans for Nanking and the economy, the army was always the priority, and many of their public works projects never got off the ground. Nevertheless, in the decade before the war, the Nationalists built some 6,000 kilometers of public highway, 3,300 kilometers of rail lines, improved ports, and opened airports. Along China's rivers and coasts, steam and diesel boats replaced sailing boats. Bus companies provided motorized transport between cities, and a new currency was introduced. The economy grew at an annual 6.7%, while electrical power increased annually at nearly 10%. Moreover, the first plans for the Three Gorges Dam, the largest hyd hydroelectric plant in the world, were also drawn up, but it wasn't completed until 2003. The Nationalists reformed the currency system, doing away with the silver standard and switched to the gold in line with the West. They established three government-owned banks located in South China beyond the reach of the Japanese and under the administration of a central currency board. They also reformed and modernized the tax system. Nevertheless, they still struggled to collect taxes outside of their core provinces. Real estate development sprang up with Western-style houses for the rich, while factories, department stores, restaurants, cinemas, shops, and demand for hired help pulled the rural poor into the country's burgeoning towns and cities. The number of cities with a population of more than 50,000 expanded from 140 in 1919 to 191 by 1937. The population of Shanghai reached 2.5 million, while those of Beijing, Tianjin, and Wuhan grew to more than 1 million. Radio stations played jazz as well as Chinese music. Magazines reviewed the latest European fashions, and China's society by the 1930s became more open to foreign influence, relatively speaking, than in the early 1920s or later in the 1950s. 
The nationalist government sought to establish ties with the West in an attempt to become a part of the world's diplomatic community. Nationalist diplomacy sought to contrast Japanese foreign policy, which had sought to expel Western powers from Asia. China, unlike Japan, welcomed foreign investment in trade, especially with the West. The nationalists courted the United States for aid and support. As many of the Kuomintang's leadership, minus Chang himself, had been educated in the United States, Chang's brother-in-law, Song Se-Win, secured a $50 million loan for the purchase of wheat and corn to help cover Chinese food shortages. Song made a similar trip to London, but made no concrete gains. Two years later, the Americans dispatched Frederick Leith Ross from the Treasury Department to help the nationalists with currency reform. The U.S. also extended China a $100 million line of credit. When Japan invaded Manchuria in 1931, the Kuomintang took the matter to the League of Nations in protest. In 1932, the League sent an investigation committee, which indeed disputed Japan's invasion, but changed very little on the ground. Despite the successes of the nationalist decade, many Chinese still lived in poverty. Only a minority of the countryside prospered. The cities, in contrast, still had their shanty towns. China's rural countryside experienced a strong recession, hunger, and small famines in the 1920s, which only intensified in the global depression of the 1930s. Constant warfare, along with extra tax levies, compounded these issues in the countryside. The cultivation of opium, a major problem, also reduced the food supply. Natural disasters also affected the economy and the day-to-day lives of most people. In 1930, the Yellow River broke its dikes. The following year saw flooding of the Yellow, Yangtze, and Pearl Rivers, leading to the death of some 2 million people. The Chandong Typhoon of 1935 killed around 50,000 people and destroyed 2 million homes. Despite the weaknesses of the nationalist regime, the government made real progress on a number of fronts, especially economic and political, during their short, generally uncontested rule of the country. Despite the success of the Kuomintang and their subjugation of the warlords, the Kuomintang still were not the sole rulers of China. Chinese communists, their one-time ally, still disputed their control of the nation despite their defeats in the 1930s. In 1934, Chiang drove the communists from central China, forcing them onto the 9,000-kilometer retreat that became the Long March. From central China to the barren wastelands of northern Qian province, Chiang's fifth encirclement campaign had killed or arrested half of the communists in central China. 86,000 communists started the Long March, but only 7,000 were left when they arrived in Yan'an in 1935. During this period, the Communist Party was plagued by infighting, and it was so bad that two opposing central committees claimed leadership of the party. The survival of Mao's group came down to chance more than anything else. Mao and his comrades learned to their surprise that a communist base existed in northern Xi'an, just 350 kilometers away. So Mao led his forces there. The other group, which was initially larger and stronger, was attacked by Muslim forces in northwest China. Mao and the remaining communists escaped to Yan, one of the most barren and most sparsely populated regions in China. Yan was hardly the location from which to launch a communist revolution, as it lacked a major city and a proletariat. Karl Marx had been dismissive, if not hostile, to peasants, famously calling them sacks of potato, forming a millstone around the neck of revolution. The Russian Revolution had begun in Petrograd. In 1871, the Paris Commune was in Paris, and the 1848 revolutions had erupted in cities such as Paris, Berlin, and Vienna. In 1921, when the Chinese Communist Party was founded, its members were convinced that in China, too, the revolution would begin in cities, not villages in remote parts of China. The 1911 revolution and the May 4th movements had indeed begun in cities. 
The cities in China amounted for no more than 20% of the population, and yet that 20% held a monopoly on the intellectual and administrative resources necessary to maintain a national government and build a socialist economy. Even more concerning to the communists, the cities were Kuomintang strongholds. Nevertheless, Mao would flip the script on socialist revolutions, and in China, the communist movement would find its home in the countryside and the village, away from the bright lights and bustling cities of coastal China. The Chinese communists, in many ways, had to make do with the resources at hand. They had been literally driven into the wilderness by the Kuomintang. The rural hue of the Chinese communism was also the realization among intellectuals and activists in the 1920s and 1930s that Chinese rural nature was the fundamental problem holding the nation back. The vast majority of China was rural, with few cities of more than a million people. Mao was born in 1893 into a prosperous farming family in Hunan province. Education provided Mao a ladder out of his rural beginnings, moving to Beijing and Shanghai. Like many young Chinese, he was caught up in the May 4th movement, speaking, reading, writing, and meeting, experimenting with new organization and new modes of life. Mao represented Hunan at the founding of the Chinese Communist Party in 1921, and until 1925 worked in Hunan to build up the Communist Party. When a warrant was issued for his arrest, he fled to Canton and became a friend of Vong Jingvi, who had arranged for him to work in the Kuomintang Propaganda Department and at the Peasant Movement Training Institute. A month-long tour of the Hunan countryside convinced Mao that the Chinese Communist Party's rural policy was wrong. Mao believed that violence and arming the peasants was the only way to stand up to the rich and the warlords that ruled China. As such, he recruited a peasant force from Hunan and then South Jiangxi province. He combined militarism with community building and social aid by redistributing land and constructing new buildings, drawing poor peasants, the youth, and women into mass organization. Determined to not allow his soldiers to become bandits, he laid down a simple set of strict rules for his soldiers to follow. There were three rules of discipline. One, obedience to orders. Two, no confiscation of peasant property. And three, the prompt surrender of all loot stolen from landlords to leadership. Mao also mandated politeness, honesty, and courtesy to women. To secure party control of this new army, Mao appointed political commissars down to the platoon level. The commissars were responsible for the ideological care of the troops, as well as compliance with party doctrines. Unlike the Kuomintang or warlord armies, no wives, concubines, or prostitutes were allowed to follow the army when it was on the march. The communists did not impress peasants into carrying their baggage like the Kuomintang. Officers and men received the same treatment. The communists even went out of their way to treat the people well and would pay a little above market prices for local goods. Communist officials were at all levels of the military to ensure obedience to the party and indoctrination of the party's philosophy. During the War of Resistance to the Japanese, the Red Army in a given region would never exceed more than 3% of the population. In this way, the communists maintained a light footprint and maintained their popularity with the peasants. This also ensured that only volunteers and the most ideologically committed were recruited during the War of Resistance. Only those with serious injuries and those who died were replaced, ensuring the loyalty and obedience of Mao's troops and contrast to the nationalists, which relied heavily on conscripts and subordinate warlord armies. As a result, these troops, especially as the war wore on, had questionable loyalty and performance versus the quality of the communist soldiers. Mao worried, though, about wealthy families and gentry infiltrating his peasant associations. 
1930, when his army reached 60,000, that fear, plus conflicts with other party members and paranoia, resulted in a witch hunt for spies in which thousands of party and government officials and Red Army officers were executed. Mao was not alone in China in his use of violence to defend his position, settle scores, and purify his ranks of dissenters, though. Nevertheless, it marked an omen of things to come in his bloodstained rule of China. This purge was well before Stalin's purges in the Soviet Union, and not an influence from Moscow. In the aftermath of this purge, Mao had weakened his power base within the party. The nationalist war against the communists had also taken its toll on the party. The party leadership was especially split over a guerrilla strategy or one focused on capturing the cities. Eventually, it was decided to capture the cities, and Mao and his guerrilla strategy were shelved. When Mao arrived in Yan'an in 1935, he was one of several Chinese Communist Party leaders. He had established himself as a guerrilla commander, but otherwise wasn't held in high esteem. By many, he was even considered a country bumpkin. Mao faced a serious and fundamental challenge in transforming a ragtag force of communist fighters and a divided communist party in poor rural Yan'an into a serious revolutionary movement. One of the chief criticisms of Mao is that he knew very little about war beyond what he had read in the Romance of the Three Kingdoms and Sun Tzu's The Art of War. Mao privately admitted that he hadn't even read The Art of War. Thus, Mao began a self-education program now that he and the Communist Party had been exiled into the wilderness. Mao read up on Marx and Lenin. From this reading, he came to the conclusion that revolution in China had to follow another path versus trying to imitate the revolutions of the past. The Chinese communists, therefore, had to develop their own revolutionary practice in which the countryside and military would play an important role. In Mao's view, the Russian Revolution had been successful because the Soviets captured Moscow and St. Petersburg. But unlike Russia, relatively speaking, power in China was more dispersed and the society was more rural. There was no centralized capital and state bureaucracy to capture. China was a failed state, which had ceased being a truly centralized state since 1912, over 20 years at this point. Even if Mao's forces had captured Nanking and, or Beijing, it would not ensure communist control of the country. Therefore, it was essential that Mao build up the countryside, winning control there before taking the cities. Mao also understood that he would need an army to defeat the warlords and Chang. Political power in China was rooted in violence and coercion. Trotsky's Red Army ultimately kept the Bolsheviks in power and defeated the whites, not Lenin's speeches or the popular support of the masses. Yet at the same time, as we have seen, Mao understood he couldn't build up an army that exploited the people at the expense of his power base in the countryside. Had Mao remained merely a political leader and expert in Marxist-Leninism, he could achieve very little politically towards instituting communism in China. On the other hand, if he was just a military leader, he would not have been able to offer the people of China a political vision of the future to unite the country. In many ways, Mao had to have the political vision of Sun Yat-sen, yet the military mind of Chiang Kai-shek to achieve victory in China. Whereas Chiang wore a military uniform, Mao wore peasants' clothing. Chiang was stiff and upright, distant and controlled. Mao was relaxed, talkative, and entertaining. Chiang went to bed early and rose early to exercise and pray. Mao slept during the day and stayed up late at night, smoked endlessly, ate sloppily, and cracked jokes, often inappropriate ones. Mao, a good classical poet, wrote in a simple style direct and to the point. None of this was by accident, though, but by design. Mao stressed the difference between him and Chang. 
Yunnan became the new radical, egalitarian, energetic alternative to corrupt, urban, exploitative, nationalist China. Mao was also determined to improve his understanding of military affairs. He read the Soviet Army's field manual, The Art of War, Ludendorff's Total War, and Klavan Clausewitz's On War, which he had translated into Chinese. Clausewitz was a major influence on his thinking, especially the critically important and often neglected connection between war and politics. He is very often quoted Clausewitz that, quote, war is the continuation of politics, close quote. Mao and his advisors would stay up late reading and discussing the various chapters of the book and how they related to China. Mao agreed with von Clausewitz that war is bloodshed, meaning it was merciless. There was nothing pretty or noble about it. The only goal on the battlefield was the utter destruction of the enemy. Mao concluded that revolution wasn't a dinner party and that real power comes from the barrel of a gun. Mao agreed with von Clausewitz that there were different types of wars. Some wars were fought for limited goals or ends, but in an absolute war, a crushing victory in the battlefield was necessary to impose your will on the enemy. Mao published his ideals in a pamphlet on protracted war, which established his credentials as a military thinker. Mao saw the Chinese Civil War moving through three phases. The first phase was one of retreat, followed by stalemate, and finally by counteroffensive. Building base areas was critical to Mao's plan. Base areas behind enemy lines were essential for protracted guerrilla warfare. In these base areas, communist forces could arouse the masses for struggle against the Japanese and the nationalists. They would also serve as areas to arm and organize the people into guerrilla units, including peasants, workers, the youth, women, children, and professionals. The general pattern was followed in which communists moved into an area presenting themselves as a legitimate civil and military authority. They would make contact with local administrators, military groups, secret societies, and religious groups. Influence was slowly built up through persuasion, education, and infiltration. Once an area was sufficiently secure, communist cadres would promote rent and interest reduction campaigns and press for the cancellation of surcharges and extra levies, all steps in line with Sun Yat-sen's vision of China. Then campaigns against abusive landlords and collaborators would follow direct elections up to the county level, and mass organization of all kinds drew the base population into politics far wider and deeper than before, thus giving the communists an unprecedented and electrifying element in Chinese public life. Campaigns were organized to promote literacy, enhance hygiene, improve the lives of women, strengthen public health, and fight superstitions. Base area life was full of meetings at which both leaders and common people discussed local and national affairs. To finance all of this, the communists turned to the cultivation of opium. Despite all of Mao's plans, though, he knew he couldn't fend off another nationalist encirclement campaign. Mao therefore called for a second united front against the Japanese. Mao hoped this alliance would allow him a chance to rest and rebuild his forces. In the end, it was the Second Sino-Japanese War, or the War of Resistance, which allowed the communists to break out of their confines and the wilderness and spread out across northern China and lay the foundations for their eventual triumphs in the Chinese Civil War. In our next episode, we will examine how the Second Sino-Japanese War saved the Chinese Communist Party from destruction and irreparably damaged the nationalists, setting the groundwork for the communist victory in 1949. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please consider sharing it on social media or with a friend. I want to, as always, thank those who have shared the show with your friends and family. 
I know it's a small gesture, but it goes a long way in us getting more listeners. If you don't have a lot of friends in history and you are already a contributor but would still like to help the podcast, give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you want to follow us on social media, check out the pictures for this episode, ask questions, or donate to the podcast, check out the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Well, there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. Right now at Sprint, you can lease the Samsung Galaxy S9 for just $5 a month with a Sprint Flex lease. Galaxy S9 is an incredible phone. It takes super slow-mo video and instantly translates foreign language signs, menus, maps, and more. Lease your Galaxy S9 for just $5 a month today. Visit a Sprint store, Sprint.com, or call 800-SPRINT-1. Phone $5 per month after $28 per month credit. Apply within two bills. If you cancel early, remaining balance due. Requires new line and 18-month lease. Excludes tax, subject to credit, $30 activation fee, and restrictions apply. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.